Well, let's pray as we come to, to look at God's word. Father, it is our prayer, just as we've been singing, that we would behold the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who has come to take away the sins of the world by his life and death and resurrection. Father, help us to see and hear the message of your grace and truth that comes to us in Jesus. For his name's sake. Amen. I want to start today with a, a definition and a confession. A definition and a confession. Uh, the definition concerns the word prodigal. I didn't say this last week, but uh, my dictionary tells me that the word prodigal means wasteful, uh, squandering, lavish, even extravagant. So you can see how the younger son in the story that Jesus told became known as the prodigal son. Chapter 15, verse 13, turn with it. Turn with me to it, Luke 15, verse 13. Uh, the younger son squandered his wealth in wild living. So he's called a prodigal, not so much because he's wicked, but because he was wasteful. Not because he was rude to his father, though he was, but because he was reckless. Uh, reckless with his money and with his lifestyle. That's why he's known as the prodigal son. But bearing that definition in mind, you can also see why Tim Keller, when he wrote a book about this parable in Luke 15, he called it the prodigal God. And if you've never read Keller's book, it's a short book, and a lot of what I'm going to say today I've either borrowed or stolen from Tim Keller. Um, so if you don't understand anything I say today, go away and buy the book, and uh, it will be a, a blessing to you, I'm sure. So why does he call God the prodigal God? Because in the story that Jesus tells, God, Jesus shows us a God who is lavish and extravagant with his love and with his grace. Grace towards sinners. Sinners like you and sinners like me. Jesus shows us a God who in the eyes of the elder brother was wasteful and reckless with his grace, squandering his love on someone who didn't deserve it. And Keller says, I'm going to quote him three times today, so here's the first one. Keller says that Jesus is showing us the God of great expenditure who is prodigal towards us, his children. God's reckless grace is our greatest hope. It's a life-changing experience. And you see, it was because Jesus was living and breathing God's reckless grace towards younger brother characters like tax collectors and immoral sinners it was because of that that the pharisees and the teachers of the law were grumbling in verse 2 that this man welcomes sinners not just welcomes them but eats with them the prodigal god well so much for the definition what about the confession well the confession concerns my own heart Although I am literally a younger brother, because I have two older brothers in my family, yet when I look at my heart, my own attitude, my emotions, my reactions, I am sadly too often like the elder brother in Jesus' story. Critical of others and self-righteous, proud and joyless. 
And it is sobering to read Keller when he says that our churches are more full of elder brothers than we'd like to think. And even, he says, as even many genuine Christians, and if we are genuinely Christians and born again by the Spirit of God, of course we are part of the feast uh, of grace in the kingdom of God. But even so, even many genuine Christians are elder brother-ish. Elder brother-ish. Maybe not elder brothers, but elder brother-ish. And make no mistake, the punchline in this parable is directed towards the elder brothers of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You could not get people more religious than the Pharisees and the scribes. You could not get people more respectable. You could not get people more righteous, at least in their own eyes, and in the eyes of pretty much everyone else in their society. And yet Jesus is saying clearly that they too are lost and need to be found. They are dead and need to be made alive. And they too are the object of the Father's love and compassion as he appeals to them. And the question is, which the parable leaves us with at the end, is how will they respond to God's grace and God's loving appeal? And how will you and I respond to it? Because you and I will never hold out our hand to receive the free grace of God unless and until we recognise that we need it. And the younger son recognised his need. But the elder son? Jesus leaves the question hanging at the end of the story. Will he join in the celebration or will he remain outside lost and dead in his pride and angry self-righteousness? Now, last week I started to tell a joke and then deliberately left out the punchline. Now, just for visitors here, I don't normally tell jokes in sermons, but there was a point to this to make the point that the, the main point of the parable was the punchline that we're looking at today. But the, the, the joke went like this. Did you hear about the dog that ran 10 miles to retrieve a stick? That sounds a little far-fetched. Nine out of ten, that's not bad. I'll take that. Sounds a little far-fetched. Well, the punchline in the parable would have sounded far-fetched, would have sounded far-fetched to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But Jesus is not joking. He is deadly serious. He wants them, and he wants us today to realise, as Keller has said, that there are two ways to be your own saviour and Lord. One is by breaking all the moral laws and setting your own course, like the younger son. And one is by keeping all the moral laws and being very, very good. Let's look at the text, verse 25 to 28a. Look 15, verse 25 to 28a. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. Now in a moment we shall see why he was angry. But let me ask you, as I ask myself, do you get angry easily? It's not always wrong to be angry, 
Uh, God himself uh, is angry when his goodness and his holiness demand it. And just this morning I was reading in Mark's Gospel where Jesus was angry at the stubbornness of the Pharisees and those who said, Jesus questioned them, is it, is, what's, what's the best thing, what's the right thing to do in the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And they didn't answer him. And Jesus was angry at their stubbornness. So it's not always wrong to be angry. But if we're honest, most of our anger, most of the time, is not righteous anger. It is fueled by our pride and self-righteousness. For a proud person is a person that is easily angered. I should just put in the caveat, anger can also be a, a symptom of stress and depression. And we need to be aware of that. If we're not usually irritable and easily angered, it may be because we're under a lot of stress or we're suffering from depression. Not that that excuses sin. It's simply to be aware of that. But pride, a pride person is someone who is easily annoyed and gets annoyed in at least three situations. A proud, person, a proud person is someone who gets annoyed when others, first of all, don't live up to the standards that we live up to. Look at them. A proud person is easily angered when others don't recognise us as morally superior or morally worthy because we do live up to these standards. And a proud person gets easily angered when they see others welcoming those who haven't lived up to our standards. Even when they have come to their senses and changed direction and repented. Welcoming them without demanding any repayment or any cost. Now do any of these things make you angry? Others who don't live up to the standards we live up to. Others who don't recognise us as being morally superior or at least morally worthy. Or those who welcome those who don't live up to our standards, even when they have come to their senses and changed direction and repented. So the elder brother is angry and refuses to go in. And that is a shocking thing to do. We've seen this parable contains a lot of shocks, especially to its first hearers, its first listeners. It's a shocking thing to do. He is being so rude to his father who is holding the feast. He is embarrassing his father in front of all his guests and servants. He is, in other words, acting just like the younger son who also was rude to his father and embarrassed him by demanding that he sell his estate and give him his share. Being rude to him by saying, Father, give to me what would be mine when you die. Saying, I wish you were dead. Well, how is the father going to react this time? Look at the end of verse 28. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Pleaded with him, appealed to him. Again, that goes against the culture of the day. Just like when the father ran to meet his younger son, whom he spied from a, a, a long way off. So now this remarkable man, this remarkable father, does not send out his servants to drag his elder son in as he could have done. Does not send out someone to rebuke his elder son. This remarkable man, showing his love and his humility, goes out leaving his guests, leaving the party behind, going out to where his son is and pleading with him to come in, to join the party, not to miss out on the feast, 
and not to miss out on the joy of the feast and the joy of welcoming his younger brother back. Not to miss out on his place at the father's table and the celebration over his brother who was lost and is now found, who was dead and is now alive again. But the elder son will have none of it. He is seething with anger and resentment. How dare his father do this? How could he? Look at verse 29. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat, never mind a fattened calf, so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Some weeks ago, I came across this verse in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, where Jesus says that the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And that was very challenging to me because when I started to think of all the nonsense and rubbish that I speak, (laughs) is that what my heart is full of? The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And the overflowing of the elder son's heart by the words that he says shows us, well, shows us again his rudeness, but it also shows his relationship with his father. It shows that he has a self-righteous sense of entitlement. And it shows us his joyless incomprehension of grace. Shows us his rudeness. Shows us the state of his relationship with his father. It shows us that he has a self-righteous sense of entitlement and it shows us that he has a joyless incomprehension of grace. Firstly, the rudeness. Look at the way he addresses his father in verse 29. Look, that's very rude in that culture. Very rude. Very rude today, actually, as well. He doesn't say father. The younger son, when he comes back, When he has come to his senses and turns for home, he says, Father. But this elder brother says, look. He's rude about the way he speaks about his younger brother. Do you see that in verse 30? He doesn't call him my brother or this brother of mine. He says, this son of yours. This son of yours. And the elder son is not being good and angry, but being rude and angry. There's a song way back that the Hollies sang and Neil Diamond sang it as well. You know, he, he ain't heavy. He's my brother. Well, the elder son is basically showing he is heavy. He's not my brother. Your son. This son of yours. Well, we're often rude when we're angry, aren't we? That tells us actually that our anger is not a righteous anger, doesn't it? If we're rude when we're angry. And we're rude especially to those closest to us. And the elder son's words, those words, this son of yours, tells us he has a problem, not just in his relationship with his brother, but a problem in his relationship with his father. Do you see that? So that's the second point we come to. What does his words tell us about his relationship with his father? What kind of relationship does the elder son have with his father? All these years I've been slaving for you. And never disobeyed your orders. 
And the elder son's attitude is that of a hired servant of a slave. He he does not see or know his father as the loving and compassionate man that he is. He sees him rather as a slave master whose orders he has obeyed out of a sense of duty. Now let me ask you, is that your religion? Does that describe your relationship with God? There's nothing wrong with duty if it flows from the river of grace and is accompanied with delight in the Lord. But if our duty is a grim, graceless compliance, an obedience flowing from a sense of our moral worth or flowing from a kind of performance-based worthiness, then we do not really know God as our Father or the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the elder son's case, this becomes clear And thirdly, we see his self-righteous sense of entitlement. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Now here's the question. Was the father a mean and a miserable man? Was his father a, a stingy old goat who wouldn't give his elder son a tasty young goat? Well, look at what the father says in verse 31. My son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. And that was literally true, wasn't it? He had divided his estate between the two sons in verse 12. It's quite clear it says that. So that what was left after the younger son had left and squandered his share of the estate, what was left belonged to the elder son. In fact, The custom of that day was that the elder son got two-thirds. It wasn't even a 50-50 split. The elder son would have two-thirds. The younger son would have been given a third. So the father was not mean and miserable, but the son thought the father owed him because of his obedience. The son thought the father owed him because of his obedience. Here's the last quotation, I think, from Keller. If, like the elder brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you have worked so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper, may be your example, even your inspiration, but he is not your saviour. You are serving as your own saviour. And that means, folks, you are not saved. If you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you've worked so hard, we sometimes call that a works righteousness. Work so hard to obey him and be a good person. Then Jesus may be your helper, your example, even your inspiration, but he is not your savior. And the trouble is, of course, if that is your attitude and the kind of relationship that you have with God, When things go wrong in life, as they invariably do and inevitably will do at some stage, elder brothers get mad with God. How could you let this happen to me? 
look at how I've lived. And if something goes wrong because they have not lived up to their moral standards, they get mad at themselves. So elder brothers do not cope well with suffering or setbacks. And if we have a sense of self-righteous entitlement, we will not only get angry at ourselves if we fail to do our duty as, as we see it, we will also get angry at younger brothers who fail to do their duty and angry at fathers who welcome back younger brothers with joy, demanding nothing. No payment, but welcome them back with grace when they come to their senses and repent. You see, someone who lives with a sense of self-righteous entitlement does not understand grace, does not get it. And if you don't understand grace, you will never rejoice when someone else's life has been transformed by it, however bad they may have been. So let me ask you, as I ask myself, do you have a grasp on what the grace of God in Jesus Christ is like? How radical and how free and how liberating it really is. Do you, do you understand that? Or does the grace of God in Jesus Christ have a grasp on you? Maybe that's a better question to ask. Does the grace of God in Jesus Christ have a grasp on you so that you know, not just in your head, but in your heart, the freedom that comes from being welcomed by the Father's arms and clothed with Jesus' righteousness and sandals put on our feet and a ring on our finger to show that we belong to the family? And sadly, the elder son's words show his, this is the fourth and last point here, the joyless incomprehension of grace. He doesn't get it. And because he doesn't get it, he is in danger of remaining outside forever, lost in his pride and self-righteousness and missing out on the celebration of grace and missing out on what grace has accomplished in his younger brother's life. Verse 30, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. He doesn't deserve it, Father. That's true, isn't it? But that's grace. He doesn't deserve it. And neither do you and neither do I. But that is grace. But the elder son is saying, I do deserve it. I who have slaved all these years, I do deserve it. No, not true. That's not grace. I think that many of you will have seen a clip by Alistair Begg. If you haven't, you can Google it. It's called The Man on the Middle Cross. I'm not going to attempt to repeat how Alistair Begg tells it. But what's important about that story, he tells the story of the man on the middle cross, the thief on the cross who dies, he goes to heaven, you see, and why should I let you in? And basically he's quizzed all about certain points and he ends up saying, the man on the middle cross said I could come. But the introduction to that and, and Alistair does it on his own. See the way he's called him Alistair there, as if I'm on first name terms with him. <laughs> Alistair Begg does it in his own uh, inimitable way. But the introduction to that, how he leads up to it is this. He says, if you, he uses a question. He talks in the clip about Fort Lauderdale. And I think that's a reference to Evangelism Explosion and two questions that they asked. And one of the questions that Evangelism Explosion was asked, if you were to die tonight, 
and go to heaven or the gates of heaven and they said, why should you be allowed into heaven? What would you say? What answer would you give? And Alistair Begg says, quite rightly, if you or I answer in the first person, I, because I, because I did this, because I believe that, because I, first person, if we say that, we've immediately gone wrong. Immediately gone wrong. The only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he, because Jesus, because Jesus came to welcome sinners and eat with them, because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, because Jesus came as the elder brother who does not despise us despite his perfect righteousness, but instead has loved us and given his life for us. Whether we have sinned against God by being very bad or sinned against him by being very good. What will the elder son do? Will he remain outside, critical, resentful, angry, self-righteous, rejecting God's grace because he does not he does not realize or recognize that he himself needs God's grace? Or will he listen to his father's loving plea and join the celebration? And what about you and what about me? Amen. Let's pray.